Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Engagement in intimate social interactions and relationships has an important influence on well-being. However, recent advances in internet and mobile communication technologies have led to a major shift in the mode of human social interactions, raising the question of how these technologies are impacting the experience of interpersonal intimacy and couple and family relationships in general. Although the study of intimacy and online social interactions is still in its early stages, there is general agreement that a form of online intimacy and attachment can be experienced in this context. Today on the AMFT podcast, we're talking all about digital intimacy, attachment and sexuality in the technological age with our digital intimacy expert, Dr. Marky Twist. First, we'll identify what digital intimacy is, and then we'll talk about attachment and sexuality in a digital context, which includes things that you'll hear about maybe for the first time today, like digi-attachment and digi-sexuality. Dr. Marky Twist is based out of Las Vegas and Minneapolis. She's an award-winning sexuality educator, sexologist, relationship therapist, author, and international speaker. Dr. Marky regularly consults and presents on the following topics. Sexuality, eroticism, relational diversity, couple and family technology practices, and tantric sex. She's the originator of Sex Speak Sessions which are held in public venues and provide the opportunity for people to show up on a first-come, first-served basis and have their questions about sex and relationships answered in a free and confidential manner. She's sought after by the media for interviews, and her work is commented upon, including in the following venues. Various podcasts and magazines you all heard of, like Women's Health, Playboy, Sexual Health, Psychology Today, and New York Magazine. She's an LMFT and a mental health counselor, an AMFT clinical fellow, an approved supervisor, and a certified sexuality educator. Dr. Markey has over 70 journal publications, 13 book chapters, and presented over 200 times in various venues. She's the co-author of books that she'll mention today in the interview, The Internet Family, Technology and Couple and Family Relationships, The Couple and Technology Framework, Intimate Relationships in a Digital Age, and Focus Genograms attachment-focused intergenerational assessment of individuals, couples, and families. We'll be back after the interview. Eli back with you. So happy to be joined by Dr. Marky Twist. And we're going to talk all today about a digital intimacy, which has more resonance now than ever before, especially as we connect to people throughout a global pandemic through virtual and digital means. So, Marky, if you've listened to the show before, the first question is always uh, learning a little bit about our experts. So how did you get interested in this topic? 
Yeah, thanks, Eli. And thank you so much for your fantastic podcast that you're doing. And I appreciate AMFT hosting you and hosting us for this important topic. I got interested in technology. Honestly, this is kind of interesting because if I had to categorize my own relationship with technology, I would say it's a professional one. So I, I don't have this deep level of like love of technology in maybe some ways that some people do that study this work. So I kind of fell into it. Um, in 2009, I started working at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in the family therapy program there with Kat Hurtline. And she was very passionate about infidelity, specifically like internet infidelity. And so we started talking about uh, just technology and the role it has in our lives back then, which, you know, now is over a decade. And then later on, you know, things evolve. And um, in about 2015, 2016, I had a chance to meet Dr. Neil MacArthur, who's based out of the University of Manitoba. And he's actually a, a philosopher and ethicist. He was doing a lot of work around technology, specifically looking at like robot intimacy and robot sex. And so then we started working together. Um, and so much like my relationship to technology has been professional, my relationship to this topic has been characterized by really professional relationships as well. So kind of boring, but that's how I got interested into it. Just professional connections. As many of us gravitate towards adapting to technology as therapists, you know, many times we are face-to-face -face people, but we adapt as the times change. So this is, a, like I said, a very relevant topic to where we are today, nestled in the global pandemic as relation-based therapists. So let's get some terms down as we start our conversation today. So as it pertains to digital intimacy, uh, what is the difference between digital attachment, uh, which you have shortened to digi attachment, and digital sexuality or digi sexuality? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think they're both forms of digital intimacy, which is really intimate connections either through technologies or with technologies. And that's really the simplest way to think about digital intimacy, just as a larger umbrella term. And then digi-attachment, Kat and I were, were writing our most recent ed edition of a technology and family book called The Internet Family. And we were looking at the relationship um, between people and their technology. And we were hearing a lot of like, oh, you know, it's an addiction to be on your phone all the time. And this is just a few years ago. So like 2018, um, people are on their phone all the time. They're addicted or you know, people have separation anxiety from their phones. People have these kinds of dynamics. And so we started thinking, you know, you know what separation anxiety sounds like and, and addiction sounds like? It really reminds us of those rhesus monkey studies back in the 1960s where they said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're I don't know if you'd be able to pass this this uh, research now by an institutional review board, I don't know, I don't study animal behavior, but um, what they did at the time was they separated the rhesus monkey uh, infant from a mother provider, and they gave the rhesus monkey then um, two options of stand-in um, mother monkeys. One was just a wire monkey that delivered food and water, and another was a cloth one that was soft and delivered food and water, water. And what they found in Harlow's research was the monkeys preferred the cloth one. And 
nobody said the monkey was addicted to that cloth monkey and nobody said that uh, there there was a, a problem with it. In fact, what they said was, hey, you can form an attachment relationship to, to an object that provides your basic needs and assistance of being met. And so Kat and I said, you know what? I think that's what's going on with technology. So we started looking at the research and there's good research on people having attachment relationships to people, right? To objects, like if you, Eli, ever had a security blanket or anything like that, I know I did and I actually still know where it is, then you had an attachment to an object. And there's good research that shows people also have attachment to um, places, to their animal companions. And then people about five years ago started doing attachment research on can you have an attachment bond to other people through your technology, through like your phone? And the answer was yes. And the answer was actually technology can can have a big impact on people's attachment styles to other people. So what we did was started saying, you know what I think it is, though? I think it's not just attachment to other people through technology. I think it's actually attachment to the technology itself. And so that's a digi attachment. It's having an attachment bond to and through one's technology. And then we we did something similar to what um, Ainsworth did. We just looked at different kinds of attachment styles uh, that people have with their technology. And we said, you know, I think many people have a securely attached relationship to their tech. Some have a dismissive one. Those are the people where no matter how many times you try to text or call, you can't reach them. And it, and it isn't you. It's just they barely notice their phone. They're very dismissive of it. Then people can have a preoccupied attachment style. And this is where that whole idea of like separation anxiety comes in. Like, you know, if if someone, if if I just asked you, hey, Eli, if I, you know, or folks listening, like your phone is missing, some people would have a very, they would have noticed already because they'd have so much separation anxiety, but some people would start to have that anxiety happen the constant need to check to see where it is, so on and so forth. And that's that very preoccupied style. And then finally, that unresolved, disorganized digi-attachment style is probably that complicated dynamic of of having technology be both a source of support, but also a place where bad things happen, like cyberbullying, trolling, and um, so on and so forth. So that's digi-attachment. And I would actually say that everyone... (laughs) who has any uh, connection to technology in more than a just passive way has some sort of a digi attachment style with their technology. What I love about that is, as you were saying before, if you tell somebody they're addicted to their phone or their technology, that has a pathological connotation and is systemic thinkers and as MFTs, you know, we try to look for health and strength. So attachment framework is such a beautiful framework and non-pathologizing. It, it just, it makes sense. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, you could really test that out if you kind of a social experiment, you pick up somebody else's cell phone, which is, <laughs> and to see how they react. Um, I was at a presentation once where uh, that was the kind of opening experiential thing. And I, that was the best kind of gut read on what somebody's digital attachment style is. But that work is very interesting if our uh, listeners want to find that work with you and Kat, uh, who's been a guest on the show before, have done? Where, where do we find that strange situation test for technology? Yeah. So if you wanted to find more information on how do we test this out, 
Um, we wrote about it in our book, The Internet Family, but, you know, honestly, we wrote a very brief piece just in 2018 in the Journal of Couple and Family Relationships. Um, and it's just the missing link. What's what's our attachment to technology? Great. Um, and people could easily see that table of attachment styles and then learn more about how it applies to that strange situation. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, I cut you off. You're going to tell us about digital sexuality or digisexuality. Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, so digisexuality would also be a form of intimacy. But here we're not talking about an attachment style either through or with our technology. We're talking about how technologies actually mediate and are immersive in our sexual experiences. So Neil and I uh, wrote about this in 2017 for a special issue in the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy. Um, and we said, hey, there's there's two different waves going on here. One, the first wave is technology is mediating our sexual experiences. So if you've ever, and this is usually when I ask people, this is almost everyone now. So have you ever done online dating? Have you ever sent a sext? You know, have you ever flirted with someone via technology? Have you ever, you know, watched any um, adult content online? Right. So any of that would, you know, have you ever used any toys um, for sexuality based experiences? Any of those things would be first wave sexuality. And that's that's a good chunk of people. Second wave is where the technology itself is so immersive that it's it's to the point where the sexual experience isn't necessarily meeting, mediating your experience to other people. It's that the sexual experience is with the technology itself. That level, many people, unless they have the opportunity and so the accessibility and the affordability to be able to do this, most people have not engaged in second wave digisexuality, which would be things like VR sex, augmented reality sexual experiences, uh, robot sex or living doll sex. So most of us haven't done that. But having said that, for the people who are very invested in more of the second wave experience or even some of the first wave folks, these people actually have have taken on identities and orientations of, of saying, hey, I, I'm a digisexual. Like there are T-shirts you can get now made by people in the general you know, pop population. I, I certainly am not an entrepreneur, so I didn't copyright any of this or make it myself, but there are enough people who feel this way that have have T-shirts that say things like "Digisexual rights are human rights." So these are people whose preferred form of sexual expression and relating sexually is via immersive technologies, and it doesn't need to involve a human partner. And I imagine a challenge would be when you have a one of these second wave people, and they maybe get into a relationship with somebody that is not immersed in this world. And that's a challenge. Because I imagine if two second waivers match up and they are aligned, they might not be presenting in your couple or family therapy office. So that's kind of leading into the next question of, for our listeners that, first of all, need to kind of upgrade their knowledge in this area, number one. But number two, what are the type of presenting problems and clinical issues that arise around this digital intimacy? Right. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So so some of the main things that I see 
people present with or my therapy interns when I supervise uh, see people present with are either an over-blaming of technology for the presenting problems or honestly an underappreciation for the role that technology plays um, in presenting concerns. So when it's an over-representation of digi issues, I would say it's the people who come in maybe in a partnership or, you know, a triad, depending on the, the number of people involved in the relationship, but they'll come in and say, my partner has a technology addiction or a porn addiction, right? Like it's technology is all to kind of blame for that, for their problems and for the problems of that individual and their problems as a relational system. And What's hard about that, which you already alluded to, is there isn't any good research to support either technology addiction or porn addiction, and neither of them is listed in, you know, by the APA as a diagnosable condition. And so really working with people around reframing that um, can be a real challenge, uh, while also acknowledging, hey, technology is important. It's just not the only thing happening. When it's an underappreciation of the role of technology, which I actually think is more common, um, it's people coming in and, you know, we know that that fairs or non-consensual non-monogamy is a big part of a lot of the monogamous couples work we do. And so when people come in and they're like, I'm upset, you know, my partner cheated on me and we spend a lot of time like breaking down, well, like, what do you mean they cheated on you? What does that mean? And eventually for some people, they'll come around and say, well, you know, a lot of it was online. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay. So that's cheating to you. And then a partner will say, well, that I didn't think that was cheating. And there's good research to support these two positions because, you know, in a large scale study of primarily cisgender heterosexual couples just done a few years ago, <laughs> half of the couples said, hey, watching online porn is cheating. And the other half said, no, it's not. So sometimes people will just have a misunderstanding, ambiguity about what relationships look like online and whether or not that's, you know, violating the rules, roles and boundaries in their own relationship. And so, again, sometimes the problem is an over over blame on tech and sometimes the problem is an under acknowledgement for the role of technology or an uneven acknowledgement. Many people listening to our podcast are young professionals and maybe even what we call digital natives. They've grown up with the technology, so this is almost secondhand. Another segment of our audience, they're more seasoned clinicians that are not up to date on these things. What, back to this kind of first wave that you were mentioning, what are the essential technologies, apps, things like that, that all MFTs should know about if they're going to work in this domain of digital intimacy? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I get this question pretty consistently, like what kind of, how, how, how aware of the, the emergent technology do I need to be um, in order to be able to address this in my practice and with the people I'm working with? So here's what's interesting, honestly, and I, I really believe this. It isn't so much, honestly, that you need to keep up with all the different kinds of emergent, emergent technology. I mean, Unless that's going to be your field or that is your field, like tech is your primary field. And even then that's broad, you're never going to keep up with everything. And as someone who kind of walks the line between both of those generations, I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. 
I'm in what I consider to be the, the very fortunate positionality of both having a good understanding of the world before kind of the modern positionality around technology we're in, but also being a young adult when the emergent technology we're in started to really hit the scene. So I feel like I kind of speak both languages around technology and generations. And so here's what I tell people. Yeah, sure. It's important to at least be aware of the current technology-based trends that are happening, especially if you're going to work with adolescents. Like you need to know at least a little bit about what Minecraft is. Do you need to know how to play Minecraft? Probably not. You know, probably you won't, but you need to know it's a game. Okay. What do you need to know? Well, what you need to know is this. Technology is going to grow and change, period. It's going to grow and change just like we grow and change. And so honestly, rather than trying to learn what the most recent technology is all the time and keep up with that, it's important to remember technology is a living, growing member of our relational systems and our largest society. And as I grow and change and my clients grow and change, so is the technology. And so what's more important is to understand the role that technology is playing because that's the part that doesn't really change. It's just the tech itself. So once you figure out, oh, technology is a part of the system and I can just treat it as a family member and get to know it along with the people I'm working with. I don't have to like go hang out with this stranger and meet, meet it and get to know it, you know, in every intimate way. No, you don't need to do that. But you do have to understand that it's growing and changing and it needs to keep being a part of the conversation just like any other member of a relational system. Oh, I love how you said that. And I like the Minecraft example uh, as well. Um, let me give you another one that I think affects a lot of couples therapists. And you and I are about the same age. So I also appreciate what you said about that. So, okay, I've been with my wife for 19 years. So it used to be in our field where online dating, you know, had a negative stigma. And now it's almost been rebranded as like, if you're not on Hinge or Bumble or one of these apps that you're kind of out of the loop. So as someone working with individuals trying to get in relationships or dating or someone working with couples, that emerging technology seems pretty important to know about the swiping left and swiping right. If, if you don't know that and clients are referencing that, you can really feel out of the loop. So talk about uh, awareness, even if you're not on the apps, what you need to do to at least have that frame of reference if you feel a little behind the curve. First of all, I think you, you speak to the point that what's happened is the technology for things like online dating has been there for like 20 years, like Grindr, um, which has primarily been used by gay men to um, hook up and date, is like 20 years old now. You know, it's important. It was important then to be aware of that particular app and then, you know, how it worked if you were going to be working with gay men specifically. But you're right. On Back then, acceptability around dating online was was just less recognized except within queer communities. So as that technology, the dating app has grown and changed over 20 years, the names of the apps, sort of the functionality and certainly the pop culture references like swiping right versus swiping left are definitely something to be aware of. At the same time, the point is the dating app has been there the whole time. So 
the, I think the important thing to be aware of is like, yeah, read a little bit of pop culture. I actually like looking at things like podcasts that just focus on technology. And I have a couple examples of that. John Danaher's Philosophical Disquisitions is great. Technology Impacting Societies is great. And that's a place you can go and just hear like some of the pop culture stuff associated with certain things via technology. So you're up to date, like what's TikTok? You know, it's good to know what TikTok is, even if you're never going to use it. But what's really important, I think, again, is just to recognize, oh, these dating apps have been here forever. I'm never going to like be an expert on every dating app, even if you do online dating, which I did. I'm still not an expert on dating apps on every one of them, but I do need to be aware of them and I need to know they've been around a long time and therefore what's been our relationship to dating apps just in general. Knowing enough so your clients know you're knowledgeable, but not knowing so much so that you're losing the individual voice of each one of your clients. Yeah, so well said. I think another thing that is important, just like in good therapy, if you don't know, the worst thing you can do in building an alliance is act like you do. So asking your client, how they use it, how it functions, which leads to kind of my next question as far as assessing digital intimacy within our clinical practice. And certainly if it's relevant to the presenting problem of why they're coming in to see you, whether it be individual, couple, or family, but talk a little bit more about assessment of digital technology and why that's important. Yeah, absolutely. So there are four micro skills that I think are important to consider in deciding whether or not you need to address if we're talking about technology specifically, but if you need to address technology. The first micro skill is just have a reflective practice. And so be aware of your own values and limitations regarding technology and digisexuality. So like first be thoughtful about that, because like you talked about already, or you mentioned, Eli, some of us might not be as expertized in this area. And so recognizing that this is a strength or an area of growth is important because you might not be the best person to handle those kinds of presenting problems. Micro skill two, two is just determining the salience of digisexuality so, or digi issues. So how much of an issue is digi stuff? Because if technology is not a problem, let's not make it a problem. And then the last micro skills, and then I'll talk just a skosh more about assessment itself, the third micro skill is validating the impact of isms people might have around their technology practices, like anything ranging from addiction to just actual like stigmas. And then finally, the last micro skill is really helping people navigate their digi health and then using practices that are affirming of that. And that actually brings up a newer concept that Neil and I came up with just this year, right as, you know, right as this global pandemic was really unfolding back in like February of 2012, we, we started writing about what we, what we are calling digital health or digi health. Um, and this would be the starting point of assessment around digi stuff. So back in 2006, the world um, health organization came up with a great definition of sexual health. And then what Neil and I decided was, hey, there's a lot of people, clients, uh, scholars, students, everybody who comes in and says there's a tech addiction or there's a porn addiction and there's all these out of control technology behaviors, just all these different ways of talking about the problem but no one had a clear definition of what it meant to be healthy about technology. And so I was like, we can't really say what's wrong with something 
until we have a definition of what's right for it. And so we came up with a definition of digital health. And then we came up with five digital health um, principles. And so when I'm working with people around technology as any sort of presenting problem, my first like look at the principles and the five principles are, is it consensual? Is there protection from exploitation and harm? Is, is it honest? Is, what are the privacy concerns? And that's, a, that's probably one of the most complicated things around technology use. And then is it pleasurable? And so from that, once I go over like this definition and we assess the gui- using those five guiding principles around digital health, then I say, let's make a digital health plan. Let's, let's talk about what's a hard yes for you. What are the things that are really healthy for you in your technology use? And that goes in a yes column. What are the hard no's? What are the boundaries around technology? And then that goes in a no column, right? And lots of times that's where people might struggle. Like these are things I think I don't want to be doing because they feel out of control to me, which is, which is what it means to not be healthy, out of control to yourself. But I still know they're a no, like I shouldn't be doing them. And then finally, what are those areas of ambivalence? Like the question mark, like you're not sure about, okay? And that's honestly, the ambivalence is probably where I spend most time with people. So then I'll do further assessments, like a technology-focused genogram, where we actually make technology a part of the genogram and people talk about their relationships with each other and to the technology and through the technology, then we do a couple different adult um, attachment measures, but we look at attachment not just to people in your life, but also the technology. So you can pretty easily supplant um, a partner for a, tech, a technology for a partner in many of the measures, like the experiences in close relationships, the adult attachment scale, um, attachment focused genograms, and then you assess the kind of digital attachment. And finally, if I've done a pretty thorough assessment in this way around technology, and it really looks like technology is a big part of the presenting problem, then I move into the use of that couple and family technology framework that Kat and I originally developed in 2013. I want to hear about the more about the couple and family technology framework that you were really well known for, but you just said so much there and I had so many thoughts go through my mind. One of it is... I imagine this is helpful, as you said, both working with an individual, if you're thinking systemically, but also with a couple. So is there any difference how you would deliver it working individually versus with a couple? And then I'm curious, what are the major areas where you found people that have the most ambivalence? They're kind of on the fence. Is this okay? Is this not okay? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually think the most ambivalence that I'm seeing right now in terms of this, is this okay or it's not okay? It, it does show up similar but different depending on the relational configurations of the clients that present. And so like individuals, a lot of the time what I get is, um, I, you know, I feel like I'm only connecting with people online and not offline and I'm worried about that. Or I feel like I'm watching too much pornography. I hear that one quite a bit too and I'm worried about that. Those would be pretty clear examples or like I'm struggling with online dating, like I keep trying it and it's not working and I don't know what to do differently, right? So sometimes those are problems outside of the technology and sometimes they're actually with the technology. And so assessing that 
um, I'll do with individuals. Those are common kinds of presenting concerns. And these assessment tools work pretty well um, for those lenses. When it's a family system, probably the biggest thing I'm getting right now is like young young people, like parents of teenagers and adolescents and pre-adolescents are worried about the role of like gaming and they're worried about social media and they're worried about um, online adult content. And so really these still, these questions mainly focusing assessment wise on DigiHealth and then on the technology focused genogram, really helpful in addressing those kinds of presenting concerns and helping people figure out like the ambiguity around these issues. When it comes to relational systems like couples or triads or polyam networks, whatever the configuration is, I really do find those attachment assessments helpful in terms of not only measuring the detachment dynamics between the people in the relationship, but also with the technology, because that that does seem to be, you know, sometimes people, this is going to sound crazy, but sometimes our people in relationships are really just jealous of someone's phone and they're not even jealous of another person. <laughs> they're just jealous of the phone itself. Right. I wish you spent as much time with me as you spent on your phone. We we hear that one often. So I imagine also if, if I'm working with a dyad, a couple, if it's not a problem for the one person, but it's a problem for their partner, then it's a problem for the relationship. So then, then you have to talk about it. So I'm curious when, because it's not like you're going to start, depending on the presenting problem, the issue, you're not going to start every session with this framework or this assessment. When would you know know when to do it? And when would you probably, as you were saying earlier, not turn something that's not a presenting problem into one? Exactly. Yeah. So, so because I think I'm in a unique position because I think what happens now is and I know this isn't the case for a lot of therapists or people training to be therapists, but but I think the situation is now that I'm pretty pretty associated with technology, and so people will come to me specifically with technology issues. I still have to determine that salience, though, right? Because, like I said, sometimes people are coming in and they're over blaming the technology, and so I still have to decide. Even if someone's coming to me and being like, I'm coming to you because you know a lot about technology and relationships and that's our problem, I still have to really ferret out whether or not that that really is the problem. So that's different. If someone comes to you and it is a tech problem, then you're already going to start to think about assessments and then really determine how much of a problem. If they're not coming to you with that, which I think is much more common if they're not coming to you with that, then it's probably going to be a secondary problem. And it isn't always a secondary problem for people, meaning not everybody has issues with technology. But honestly, most people are just using technology and not really talking about it. And so if you can't talk about something, maybe you shouldn't really be using it the way you're doing it. And so when people come in to to see me and they have other problems, I still get curious, right? So Part of my initial screening when people have a presenting problem, like let's say they come in and they're like, oh, you know, my presenting problem is I've been feeling more depressed and isolated and that's creating a lot of stress in my marriage, right? And I'm like, okay, that's understandable. And then I usually ask, well, are there are there times like where you feel less uh, depressed? And is that, you know, when you're interacting with other people or you're interacting with people online, offline. So 
in just general everyday questions, I still ask about technological engagement. I'm just doing it um, as a way of, of getting curious about the presenting problem. And what you were saying earlier also made me think about sometimes the problem is not the technology itself. It's the lack of disclosure or transparency around it. So whether the couple or the family with the teenager, if they could just talk about it and the partner or the parent, whatever it may be, could understand, then it probably wouldn't be a a big issue. It's the secrecy and the covertness of it sometimes that turns the technology into a problem, right? Yes, I think that is totally accurate. I think there is still so much misunderstanding and oftentimes stigma around technology use. And I just mean in general, like (laughs) every year Chapman University since 2014, by the way, Eli, this is now like my favorite annual research to read. Every year Chapman University does a what are the greatest fears of U.S. like people? Like, what are we most afraid of? Um, and in 2014 and 2015, technology was in the top five biggest fears for people in the United States. Like, and that ranged everywhere from like robots to like hacking to like bullying. Like, those were those were huge fears. They are huge fears. And so you're right. A lot of times people are just afraid to talk about their technology use. They really are. You know, maybe that's not unfounded considering technophobia has really been a pretty high fear for people. And you were saying too about your couple and family technology framework that you developed. Say a little more about that and where uh, people can find that because I, I know I have my students look at that and it's a great uh, a great resource that you and Kat put together. Thank you so much, Eli. I'm glad they find it helpful. <laughs> you know, Kat and I joke around that our ideas have always been just a skosh too early. And so we wrote originally about the couple and family technology framework in 2013 in our first book titled The Same. And no one really bought it. (laughs) And I think we were just a little too far ahead. Um, And that's okay. That's fine. Um, So we revamped it just a skosh. And now it's in the Internet Family, which came out in 2019. And what that framework is, we drew from, because again, Kat and I are not, if you know Kat, you know me, we don't have a degree in computer science. Like that's not, I mean, we're therapists first, right? So this is not, we're not experts on that. So what we did was we decided to make an interdisciplinary framework using uh, theory and practices from family studies, family therapy, computer technology, information systems, media studies, psychology, and communication studies. And we said, let's make a framework that regardless of the kind of technology that emerges, people can still use it to explore and investigate the effects of technology in relationships, in individual, couple, family, and other relational systems. And so we decided, you know what, like, okay, if we're going to do that, here's all this literature, how do we synthesize it? And how do we make it something we can actually use? Because the thing is, as a therapist, you really just want like a table, or just a, a graph or a chart or a visual representation. So it's easy to take it with you and just either hand it to clients or just use it. And so we came up with three parts to um, our framework. One is structure. We were like, okay, 
Technology, again, you have to accept this idea that technology might as well best be thought of as another member of your relational system. And if it is that, then it affects the structure of the systems you're in. And it's affected by the structure of the overall system. So the structure includes the rules, the rules, and the boundaries. The rules are like the rules that govern technology use. And again, it has to be it has to grow and change over time because the tech will, and so were you and your family. The roles, right? What role does technology play um, in the family or in your life? And that's influenced by lots of things like identity and demographics. Like we know that that LGBTQIA plus um, folks have a longer and more varied use of technology use than than their straight counterparts. Just for example, so. It definitely plays a part, like identity and demographics and the role that that technology plays. And then the boundaries. And those are those ways of determining like privacy and public within systems and outside systems, because the thing of it is, is technology can make you vulnerable to all sorts of people you don't know, right? The next part of the model is process. So structure and process. Process is not only affected by tech, but also has an effect on technology And there's three parts to process formation relationships. So technology influences how relationships form, just like you already mentioned. Online dating is now kind of the norm, the default setting, whereas at one time that was considered so fringe that most people didn't take it seriously. So technology um, process is influenced, but it influences our formation of relationships. Also, side note, which people don't realize, text-based communication like chatting, emailing, texting, those kinds of things tend to build intimacy more quickly than verbal communication or video communication. And so early on in relationships, this is why online dating apps honestly are quite so successful, even if you never meet, because people are texting each other and it makes them feel this sense of closeness and vulnerability and ability to disclose in ways that that you want to because it it has a time delay, right? So I always call that uh, keyboard courage that people can text <laughs> oh, things they, they wouldn't great. they wouldn't say to somebody's face. Do you think that's why that is? That is an interesting finding. Uh, I'm curious why you think that is that way because I, I agree, but um, I'm curious. We can censor. We can censor, right? And. That works. We can present ourselves in so many different ways by text-based communication. And oftentimes I'll talk with people who then go on a date with someone and they're like, they weren't at all the same person. And I'm like, well, yeah, (laughs) it's a different kind of communicating, right? It's different. That also might explain why there are people who develop loving relationships with, with like a app, right? Like there's a whole group of people in Japan right now that are dating like this this app, this robot app. Um, we, we could do a whole show on that. I am curious because I know nothing about uh, this robot world, but it is a certainly a a niche audience now. Where uh, we could do a whole different, like I said, show on that. Where can therapists that are really out of the loop on that, where can they get information on that type of stuff? There is a fantastic book, and then I'll finish the model. There's a fantastic book called Robot Sex by Danaher and MacArthur, which is a great read, which will tell you a lot more about that and also help you kind of start to negotiate what you kind of see as acceptable and ambiguous around robot and human dynamics. And then again, 
I will mention John Danaher's podcast. He's based out of Ireland, and I'd say he's doing the most work around robots and humans. I mean, just tons of it. And so his his podcast would also be a great place to start. Of course, there's a lot of pop culture references to robots as well. So like some people will watch like Black Mirror, um, Westworld. And although I think that will help you have an understanding of like future possibilities around robots and humans, I'm not sure it's quite, it's a little far ahead from where we are right now. But it's helpful in starting to think through things that you might talk through with your client. Why do I think you said, what did you call it when it's, com- is it computer courage? What did you Keep, Keyboard courage. courage. That I- That's so great. So I think it's there and I think it, it makes perfect sense. We're, we're just, you know, it's almost like getting to write like love notes back in the day and send them back and forth, right? I mean, you just, you have a different way to present yourself. What's interesting, though, is the same relationship, text-based communication, once they have an established relationship, so like six months in or like a year in, it doesn't get used that way anymore. Now it gets used more as like a honey-do list, right? Like, I need you to go to the grocery store. Okay, we'll do, right? It, it, it loses that ability to create this more close connection, that was there in the beginning. And so Kat always recommends people do like some dating through their technology like they did at the beginning. Like, why don't you send each other sexts again? Why don't you flirt with each other online like you used to? When people's relationship starts to kind of, you know, get a little more like uh, patterned and, and more predictable. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the, the, again, the pandemic as far as your thoughts on how that has impacted digital intimate connections and the relationship between people and their technology. I, I know certainly I have probably over the last year have have used my technology more to connect with people just because I can't see them face to face. So I'm curious what you think. 100%. I mean, we actually have pretty good data on how much technology is influencing our relationships during this pandemic. And I, for one, feel a huge debt of gratitude to technology because I we wouldn't be doing this, Eli. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And I grew up in Alaska out in the middle of nowhere. And I can't imagine if this pandemic had happened when I was a kid there because I'd be so isolated. So I actually think technology has really helped with our intimacy with each other during this. Having said that, there's always a flip side, right? Like, One of the things we know about pandemics and quarantining historically, so in the past, is rumors tend to spread. And certainly we're seeing that happen. And that would happen anyway, because we have historical evidence for those kinds of things. But I think all technology has done, particularly social media, has just sped it up and made us more connected in a bigger way. And so those rumors are spreading more quickly. So as much as tech has done great things like I mean, you want to talk about second wave digisexuality, Sextal Genie has reported like a 33% increase between April of 2020 and April 2019 in buying sex dolls for heterosexual couples. Like, it's huge. Like, teledildonic sales by WeVive, like in places like Spain, went up 300% this year. People are not only engaging in first wave digisexuality more during this pandemic, they're also really starting to branch into that second wave. And that's so exciting. 
Well, you are a true kind of scientist practitioner and also a, you know, an MFT educator and a clinical trainer. The technology changes so much. Like you said, everything has been sped up because of this pandemic. Last question is, where do you think we need to go as a field uh, on this and where in your own work? Because you are, I mean, you're on the show because you're, uh, I mean, you literally wrote the book and you're a leading innovator in this area. Where is your own research going to take you in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll totally answer that. Let me finish the model really quick. So the last two parts, maintenance and dissolution in process, and then that final part of the model, which is exactly what I think is most important in future conversation and what I'm doing now, um, are those ecological elements. And there's eight of them. So there's eight elements that technology create in environments for us that we need to pay attention to in our relationships. And those are acceptability, anonymity, accessibility, affordability, approximation, accommodation, ambiguity, and accountability. I think if you pay, if you pay attention to your digital health, I really think we need to start thinking about not just what's problematic about our technology use, but what's good about it. So I actually, so maybe more of a solution focused lens. I think we need to pay attention to our digital health. And then I think we need to like, if there is a problem, I think we need to look at those elements and say, where is this problem coming from? Is it that I just haven't decided how I feel about this? Like, for example, when I first started doing the work around robot sex, and then I had my first client come in and say, hey, I'm a digisexual. There was still a part of me as someone who grew up in Alaska in the middle of nowhere as a Gen Xer, I was like, I I'm kind of feeling a bit weird about this. Like this person wants to just have relationships with their technology. And I was the person who'd wrote about it. But I think we have to, each of us really start to figure out where we sit as professionals in our relationship with technology and where our clients sit in the relationship. Cause here's the thing. It's not going anywhere. Okay. Like it's literally not going anywhere and technology is just going to keep growing. And so starting to look at it in all the incredibly powerful ways it can actually be helpful instead of only focusing on the harm, which I think, you know, therapists were trained to see problems and that's good. That's our job. But we really need to also look at how helpful it is because technology has really done some amazing things. Well, let me correct that. We've done amazing things with and through technology as long as we give it the attention that it deserves and not too much attention. (laughs) I couldn't say it any better than that. What if people are listening to this and you're a wealth of information? Obviously, you can mention Internet Family again in the books, what you're currently working on, and then how people can contact you if they want to continue the dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Eli. Yeah, so Kat and I wrote a book in 2019, and that's Kat Hurtline and Marky Twist. The Internet Family, Technology, and Couple and Family Relationships. It has a lot of what I talked about in uh, here today and, and more. I think that's very helpful. What I'm actually working on right now, Dr. Neil MacArthur and I are working on a book solely about digisexuality, and we're hoping to get that out by next year. Um, and then, in general, you can reach me at drmarkey.com, um, and then my email is just markeytwist at gmail.com. I also am the editor for the newsletter for the Queer Trans Advocacy Network um, for AMFT's QTAN. 
I'd love to connect with you through that mechanism. If that's We've had Erica on the show, so that's a great topical interest network of the AMFT for sure. Oh, it's so great. So connect with me there. And then I'm also, I have the honor of being the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy. It's based out of the UK through an organization, kind of like AMFT, called COSERIT, which is the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists over there. And I'm constantly like, publishing great stuff there around technology. And and I would love for people to connect with me there. And if you have anything that you're looking to find their home for publication wise, you might try us out. Thank you so much, Marky Twist. I learned a ton today and I hope we can have you back and continue the dialogue. Awesome. Thank you, Eli. Thank you, Marky Twist. That was awesome. I learned so much, uh, a lot of things I didn't know, including anything to do with a robot and sexuality. But as always, we strive to bring you on the AMFT podcast, the latest and greatest in trends affecting the systemic therapist, whether you're working with individuals, couples, or families, we have you covered. I didn't mention, or we brought it up at the interview, Marky spent time at UNLV, and she's now a full professor in human development and family studies the MFT program, as well as the program coordinator of the Graduate Certificate in Sex Therapy program at the University of Wisconsin-Stout. However, you can find everything you want to know about Markey at drmarkey.com, as she mentioned, including her blog, information on consultations, speaking engagements, including those sex speak sessions, as well as all of the links to her publications. We appreciate you following us. You can always get all of the back installments of the AMFT podcast now in our third season, wherever you find your favorite podcast. I am partial to Apple Podcasts, but you can go to Google, Stitcher, anywhere you want. You can also go to aamft.org and see the whole back installments. But we're in the middle of our spring AAMFT live podcast series where you uh, see me and our great guests promoting the Handbook of Systemic Therapy, a -a one-in-a-kind resource covering all things systemic therapy. And in this four-part series where we go live, you can register free online, amft.org, to uh, catch the live version of the podcast. We just had our first one with Gwen Daniel. It was excellent. Coming up on March 19th, I'll be talking to Lori Charles and Salia Bava about systemic family therapy and global mental health, reflections on professional development and training. Then on April 2nd, these are Fridays, 11 to 12, by the way, Eastern time, we'll be talking to Mudita Rascogi about a systemic conceptualization of interventions with families in a global context. And then we'll end this series April 16th talking to Carlin Tishner and Corey Yeager from their great article that they were part of, among many other authors, in the handbook called Letters to the Field, Working Therapeutically with African-American Youth, Families, and Communities, the AMFT podcast. Whether you catch us on demand or you catch us live, your place for all things systemic, you can get a hold of me at Eli at NorthStoreCounselingCenter.com. Follow us on Twitter at the AAMFT, and I'm at Dr. Eli Live. You can also check me out at EliCaram.com. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.